Good morning. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird, and today we're broadcasting live from joltradio.org in Miami, Florida. The theme of today's show is contemporary performance art. And this art stands outside the market often, doesn't get as much attention and documentation as it might. Let's begin with the latest Fresh Art International podcast episode that I recorded with American artist William Pope L. To most, he goes by Pope L, and he's a legend in the field of performance art. I recorded a recent conversation with him in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where he created Baile, a four-day street performance project featuring local dancers. Mateus Leston composed the audio track. Let's listen to a few minutes of his original composition, followed by the podcast episode. The track he composed conveyed the acute sense of anxiety and uncertainty surrounding political conflicts in Brazil this year. For me, these sounds channel the same conflicted emotions felt across America and around the world, actually, after the recent United States presidential election. Today we're taking you to the heart of Sao Paulo, Brazil, where late one night in September, I come upon a young couple wearing shrunken party clothes and skull masks. They're dancing to strange music on a street corner behind the municipal theater. I recognize the American artist William Pope L. standing nearby and realize that at last I've found Baile, or Ball, the performance art project he created for the 32nd Sao Paulo Biennial. Baile is a theatrical piece based on Pope L's research into recent political frictions and social inequalities in Brazil. Pope L is best known for the social commentary of his endurance projects. Earlier in his career, he performed Solo, a series of crawls along the streets of New York City. Baile is collaborative, similar to Pull in Cleveland, Ohio, and Blink in New Orleans. The performance involves locals, and takes place over several days, winding its way through neighborhoods. In Sao Paulo, three pairs of professional dancers take eight-hour shifts to perform 24 hours a day for four days. They walk and dance along a mapped-out route at the heart of the city. Festa de Debutante, the traditional coming-out party for young women in Brazil, inspires their costumes. They carry their soundtrack with speakers and a small backpack. Two attendants dressed in white hoodies marked with black skull and crossbones follow a few steps behind. 
I joined Pope L to shadow the last hours of the shift that will end at midnight. Together we trace a path through the urban landscape beneath the night sky. It's an endurance. It crosses a lot of geographical areas in the city. Poor, rich, high-rise, just regular residential. Mm-hmm. Trying to explore the city, trying to give a sense of the landscape. Presented to people, perhaps, who've never seen this kind of work. There's a lot of people who've made this happen, just like with the project in New Orleans. What motivated this project in particular? Casa de Batante is like a coming out. And Brazil, politically, is going through certain throes or issues. It's a young democracy. It's trying to find its way. At the moment, some people are very unhappy with the current situation with uh, Michel Temer. And this text that you're hearing, this man who's speaking, he's a very funny guy, Ciro. Uh, He's talking about this unhappiness with Temer and how the children of Brazil, the children of Sao Paulo, are unhappy with his impeachment of uh, Dilma Rousseff. They're adult bodies and children's clothing. The politics currently has that kind of character to it, of adults playing out a set of roles for ends that are, in many cases, seems to be nefarious. It seems like their interests are not about the people of Brazil. I mean, you find that, of course, at home. Some people say that certain folk are like that at home as well. People have compared Tamer to Trump or Kaczynski in, in Poland. So I can see that. There's yes. a skull scene going here. Oh, yeah, death Pope is L. everywhere. Death, death is, is everywhere. everywhere. And also the sense of an unknown, because your certainty, your sense of your community is not has gone awry in some way, in some serious way. And you're trying to uh, clarify that. So death doesn't always have to mean the end. It can simply mean the unknown. Change. Change with a dark edge to it. Brazil still has a lot of so strong social programs, unlike some in the United States. And those, uh, Tamer has, in certain ways, threatened those programs. And many of these people rely on those things. So I think that sense of certainty that people in Brazil have, have had, well, that's being questioned. And for reasons that are not clear to them. That's why this piece fits perfectly with the theme of the biennial. <laughs> Living uncertainty. Yes. Tell me about the gestures, their choreography. Some of these actions you would see at rallies or Definitely. At, uh, at, the, at the manifestations, they call them here. Yes. The protests. And there have been those protests in the Biennial Pavilion this week. And the gestures and the words, yes. Mm-hmm. It's quite reflective of what I've been seeing. The police and how they react with their shields, how they bang their shields, almost like African warriors. They bang their shields and they approach. They form a line like Roman soldiers. And as they approach you, they bang their shields, almost like they're flushing the animals from the bush. Only, of course, it's much louder and more threatening. It's a mixture of some of the gestures you see in Festa Debutante and this protest manifestation actions. And it switches back and forth. Almost from the political to the romantic and back. What has been the public response? Curiosity. It's an interesting city, Sao Paulo. People, some people yell. 
some of it I don't understand, but it's been translated to, for me. Some man was talking about, there's my parents. So for some, the Festa Debutante is an outmoded form of coming of age. This is an extreme version. That's why his little pants. This comes from actually, I got the idea of countries having a civil function of parenting. And leaders acting like children. Yes, and then the <laughs> citizens acting out or, you know, simply bowing under and doing as they're told. O Brasil de hoje, meus filhos dançam e dançam e dançam e dançam até que seus pés viram barro. The performance makes a loop inside the city, taking the same path each day. Part of it is the cyclical nature of human. How do you say? It suggests more meaning because it has now a structure. What environments were you seeking to cross through? Working class neighborhoods, uh, neighborhoods that are more, in quote, run down, gated neighborhoods, of which there are many here, neighborhoods where there are people who just are hanging out in plazas, neighborhoods where people are just doing their daily business, like Avenue Paulista is like that. Tons and tons of people, most of the times of day, you sort of wade your way through it. And there are certain streets here that where people are elbow to elbow and there's vehicles like two inches from you. Um, so there's very dense, hilly neighborhoods that you have to fight your way through. And there are some that are just uh, very spacious. Um golpe, azar de vocês, seus bocós. Hope L wrote the lyrics for the soundtrack. Two hours long, the track features a male voice alternating with an atmospheric musical composition designed to transcend the big city soundscape. We cross through the edge of the Paulista district. It's a quiet night. We pass two outdoor homeless communities and a bar playing 80s rap music for a few customers. Once we pause for a fleet of nocturnal cyclists. What kind of memories does this bring back to you, watching them endure? You didn't have shifts of people. No, it was just no, you. It's just me. That's uh, uh. so why, in some ways, I, I guess the intrepidness of them I never thought of myself that way, but I see Although it in them. The whole world saw you that way. <laughs> Maybe a little protective of their energy. These guys are incredible. I mean, I know what it's like to do this. As you can hear, performance can be an endurance. And now we're going to start talking about a magnificent three-hour street performance coming to Miami Beach later this month. Here with me in the studio are curator Claire Tancon and artist Marinella Senatore. They're here to talk about Tide by Side, a spectacular event that will take place in the new cultural district called Faena District on Miami Beach. Let's set the stage for our conversation with the sound of one of the performances you'll encounter 
If you make your way to the district on Collins Avenue between 32nd and 36th Street on November 27th for an amazing processional. That was a slice of sound from a reversed conga created by two Cuban artists known as Los Carpinteros. And here in the studio with me are Claire Tancon and Marinella Senatore. Welcome. Thank, Thank you, you very much. <laughs> the performance we just heard a slice of is one of six that will be fed in a new district on Miami Beach in a processional performance called Tide by Side. I'm going to introduce you first, Claire, just to tell them where you're coming from. Claire's the artistic director that's bringing all these performances together for us, and her practice in curating is an expanded field like mine is, in a way, because I curate this radio show and a podcast. She curates these experimental projects that involve the aesthetics of walking, marching, second lining, masquerading, and parading in participatory performances. Marinella shares that with her as well in some ways. The one that has been circulating around the Caribbean recently that she curated is called En Mas, Carnival and Performance Art of the Caribbean. And we met at Prospect New Orleans five years ago when I recorded my first episode with Popel. That's right. So it's great to see you here in the studio, Claire. Thank you so much, Kathy. For this project, you're collaborating with Gia Wolf, an architect, and then Arturo Lindsay doing sound and working with Miami-based and international artists, including Marinella. Tell me about your vision for Tide by Side. Thank you, Kathy. You know, New Orleans is a great place to start indeed because staying to live in New Orleans following Prospect One, which is that which brought me there, further confirmed this intuition that I've always had that's really fed by my curatorial and scholarly research about the power 
of some of these ongoing and continuously existing traditions of parades and processions and carnival. So, of course, in New Orleans, there's the weekly second lines, there's the yearly seasonal carnivals. Uh, here in Miami, these traditions have been uh, maintained by some of the Caribbean and Latin American communities. We can think of the board carnival, for instance. We can think of the Trinidadian and Caribbean populations. We can think of, of Junkanoo. And so, you know, specifically within the context of Miami Beach, I wanted to bring to the fore these carnival energies and the way in which they impact community making on the one hand, but also claiming space on the other hand, both features of everyday city life that have come to become, I would say, even more important in the uh, contemporary uh, moment we live. So, you know, for me, Tide by Side was really about looking and maintaining this ongoing work and research on carnival procession and performance, but also opening it up uh, beyond its Caribbean roots and, you know, looking towards the work of an artist uh, such as uh, Marinella, who is not so much concerned with any particular form of genre as much as she is, as she will uh, herself expose to us, in the way in which we can form shared affinities among people and form constituencies that may not be otherwise possible if it wasn't for this human rapport that is created through various means of communications, including uh, movement or, or movement-based you know, practices. So just to you know, wrap that up, Tide by Side is obviously a pun. The idea of building community in Miami Beach, in Miami more broadly, tide after tide, side by side. So we've side by side the notion of community making. We've tide after tide, a relationship to the ecology, an ecological economy of art making also. So tied by side, the opening processional performance of the Fine Art District, a really unprecedented mini urban experiment at the core of which is the development of artistic practices that would not otherwise be so readily ex exposed or made visible. So, you know, I am ever thankful to our patrons, Jimena Caminos, the executive director of Faena Art and Alan Faena for their vision and the way in which they literally think outside the walls in bringing this genre of what I like to call processional performance within such a large field of acceptance and recognition. To me, it's really quite significant that they would choose, you know, such, such a medium to launch this International Contemporary Art Center here in Miami Beach. I think it's important for us to kind of situate the district because the processional itself in the district covers three long blocks that are parallel to the beach. So if you come across uh, the causeway to the beach, you don't go to South Beach, you go slightly north, and this new district encompasses different buildings, and it will be activating a geodesic dome, a t what they're calling a time capsule, on the beach at the same time during Miami Art Week. But the long-term vision will 
be revealed in a way through this processional, I believe. Yes, if I can speak to this briefly. So yes, the Finite District is situated around Collins Avenue between 32nd and 36th and is uh, snug between the Atlantic Ocean and Indian Creek. And so hence, you know, again, the notion of, you know, being between, you know, tides. And as concerned the opening events, ours is the first, but there will also be a dance performance, Pam Tanovitz the following day within the forum. Uh, there is also going to be a conversation and other events. So we're just one of a few. Exactly. And we just could give that hours itself, right? (laughs) But let's describe how the procession will unfold. Like what artists are involved besides Marinella, who will have her own moment to talk about her amazing project with community groups. Yes. So Kathy, my co-directors, as you mentioned, are Otto Lindsay, who is taking care of the soundscape, which is composed of both live and pre-recorded mixes, and Gia Wolf, who's been helping us think specially about the stage uh, within which this processional performance can unfold, and is also taking a stab at lighting for the processional performance, November 27th, Sunday, from 3 to 6, so a little bit of nighttime, you know, a little bit of a temporal transition in that way as well. And then the artist, there's Los Calpinteros, um, the sound of their project of which we just heard, Conga Irreversible. Uh, there is Marinella Senatore, who will speak about her work. There is Carlos Betancourt, Miami's very own uh, cherished artist. There is Carnival Arts, a wonderful community uh, arts organization also based in Miami. And there is the great Anthony Miralda, who is the first artist, as I was telling Marinella, whom I invited because of his partial residence to Miami and his veteran status within the parade uh, field. But on yes, that, he, uh, just to mention Miralda, I met him in Barcelona yes. a few years ago, and his whole relationship with food culture will be playing out in his part of the performance, which should be pretty exciting. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you're asking me to reveal a little bit about how, you know, Tide by Side will unfold. And I'm probably the last one to know. And the reason for that is that for despite the organizing principle that I have implemented within it, whereby Carlos Betancourt and La Conga, uh, Los Carpinteros, will be playing off of each other in many ways. Marinella Senatore and Carnival Arts also will be in, in dialogue. Anthony Miralda will bring us all together. But it really is not a parade, certainly not of the triumphant kind. It will not solely unfold on Collins Avenue. It will really invade infest, inflict motion within the entirety of the Fahrenheit district and specifically around the two key blocks within which sit the new OMA, Rem Koolhaas, Shohei Shigematsu Design, Fahrenheit Forum, Fahrenheit Bazaar and Fahrenheit Park. So yeah. the those who come to experience this will not just be standing at the side of the street watching things go by, they will have opportunities to join in and explore the district too. Absolutely. And this is where one begins to understand how malleable and how flexible this particular content provider that the processional performance is can be. It's really a a way to thread these various performances in time and space, but also to allow energy to rebound off of each other. So it is by no means a traditional carnival, neither it is fully a demonstration, although there will be such elements within it. It really is an original 
work of its own that is held very tightly, but also very uh, in a very fragile fashion, based on the very energies that are produced in the very process of making that we're in and the magic, really, of live performance, particularly of the massive dimension that this particular genre of performance takes. You know, it is not something that is safely rehearsed, you know, in a museum. It is not something that is bound by walls in any way. It is really something that happens live with hundreds of participants, uh, thousands of audience members. So it's a very significant difference in terms of, you know, the way in which we have come to think of performance. But Marinella, you can speak to that, I'm sure. Yeah, let me introduce you now, Marinella. Thank you, Claire. That was Thank beautiful. You, <laughs> I'm wanting to be sure that people know about you as well, that you are from Italy, trained in music, fine arts, and film, and you have been embracing public participation in expansive public art performances for some time now. And I see you doing it all over the world. The School of Narrative Dance that you founded and use as a mobile platform for educating and bringing people together is playing a role in what you're doing here on Miami Beach, correct? Yes, it's absolutely correct. When I first spoke with Claire, we thought immediately about the School of Narrative Dance in its Miami version. The School of Narrative Dance, as you said, was founded by me in 2013, and it's a nomadic, free-of-charge school based on emancipation and empowering of participants. And it's, first of all, a didactic project. We strongly believe in a horizontal system of education. The dance, among others, tools for storytelling is one of the most powerful language that we use. Uh, usually our students are not professional dancers at all, but we mix together people very different from age, background, desire, also wishes, and uh, we negotiate with them constantly the kind of project they had experience they want to live within the School of Narrative Dance. And that's exactly what we bring here in Miami, the melting pot and the mix of people and the different uh, languages they speak uh, with the body or also with their voice, connected with their uh, memory, the community memory sometimes. It's super important but also very flexible at the same time so we adapt constantly the project to the place where we are um, working i see well i've seen it happen because i met you in lyon yes. when you've done uh, three amazing projects there and i'm really excited to hear about what community groups you're bringing together this time <laughs> Where who are you working with in Miami? <laughs> it's very exciting for me because every time is different. I can't uh, imagine what kind of groups, individuals I will meet. I just spread my open call as I used to do, and now my way to work and the structure of work is absolutely flexible accordingly with the desire of people. So here we will work with professional and amateur dancers, with wrestlers, <laughs> with <laughs> of course with the Caribbean and, and musicians and uh, an orchestra, classical uh, trio, chamber, uh, just male choir, and so different soundscapes and ballet dancers. Uh, we are already in contact with a lot of people that will make a slow march. Uh, in my opinion, as Claire explained very well, also the movement of the audience, it's a very important political and social gesture because moving 
massively and together, we find that ourselves and we recognize ourselves as a community, as a group. We explore the space and the body in a space is always a political fact, which is important. As Latin say, I walk so I exist. And that's the meaning behind the, a segment of my contribution to Tide by Side, which will be a very, very slow march, which is also a sign of uh, resistance, but absolutely pacific and uh, compelling. For instance, in Mumbai, around the Gandhi house, every day there are young and very old people just marching, super slowing. That's a way to reconnect themselves with their, their mind, their life and the environment, and also to protest about something. It's, it's a movement extremely graceful and uh, very powerful. So we will have even a lot of workers and uh, people not trained at all in dance marching uh, during the procession. So will there be a theme costume-wise? Will we recognize that it's your people? <laughs> I guess so, because... Because of how uh, they're moving? Yes, I guess so, because in uh, for the School of Narrative Dance, we work here in Miami according with the result of our open call, because it's never an abusive role from the artist or something that I conceived before. Based on the result and the desire of people and the energy of people joining my project, we will have a lot of dissonances between languages. Uh, so we will have wrestlers that uh, work together less antagonist to ballet dancers, this uh, very big group of uh, slow marching people and classical music and uh, static individuals that stroke poses that mm, means something and uh, for them and uh, we don't ask people to make something behind their possibility or or something that they are not comfortable to do. It's very according with their possibility and their wishes. How many people does it turn out to be that at, you're at choreographing this time? At the moment, we have a, an average of 100 people, but we are still recruiting and we have a lot of meetings still. And we are also in contact with the tap dancer, which will embrace a, a, what I call the fight of uh, dancers. They will perform uh, a cappella. They will uh, pretend to make a sort of fight. And uh, so there are visions that belong also to our political and social social imaginary, also gymnastic will join us. So you will see a lot of dissonances with the then uh, Rara band and uh, more Caribbean music and, and, uh, and rhythm and energy. So different energy, different rhythm, a very human landscape that changes constantly and explore the place and involve also the audience and engage the audience to take part at the very end of the performance. If I may, if I may interject, uh, you know, about costumes, right? In much the same way that the dress doesn't make the man, the costume does not make the carnival. So it's really the dimension of motion and movement understood both as motion of the body and social movement, right? Exactly. And so that's really what we're bringing to the finite district within the context of Tide by Side. In a, w a moving landscape, as I you love that human yeah. landscape. I think that is a good descriptive. Right? Yes, but also really, uh, you know, this temporary community that we have been forming for two years that we've been working on the project that we are further cementing within, you know, the weeks leading up to what is in fact only but the culmination of a long process that we also do hope will continue after the performance is over. That was my last question. 
the two of you, what do you hope that Miami Beach, Miami takes away from this side-by-side experience? I hope that there will be a sustained engagement with this particular ways of uh, coming together in public space and affecting the urban and social uh, landscape, intervening within architectural space. I hope that maybe it will become uh, a seasonal event that can recur. And I hope that our minds and heart and bodies will be transformed because ultimately these processes are transformative and performance is meant to be transformative. And I think it is even more so and even more true when it's on the mass scale uh, with such great popular reach. So it's a transformative process. And so that's what I hope will be the outcome of Tide by Side, a transformation on any social material and we dare say political level. In addition of that, I can just say that based on my experience also in these last 15 uh, years, art can just suggest changes and transformation. So it will be wrong to trying to dominate this moment. The result of this experience is up to the people and they will uh, decide what to do with that. But for sure, engaging people in uh, meetings with the person, individuals, group very different from each other with different cultures, ages, desire, activist uh, interest, etc. It's a powerful bound that uh, rarely it's lost after the project is finished. So this kind of, uh, of uh, project like Tide by Side can engage and instigate people to continuous, maybe with the same people they, they met or with the others, but for the appropriation of the space and the social space. So it's a, a very big instigator, I will say. Yeah providing the tools more so than the form or a packaged, you know, spectacle. It is anything but that. And it is indeed up to the audience to come and join. And that's why it is much more of a process, a processional performance than a stage parade, than yeah. a canned spectacle. So I think that's a great orientation for those who are listening that will want to know more. Where would they go to find out more about Tide by Side. The Fine Art website has a page dedicated to our project. There's an insert in the Miami Herald that is uh, coming up soon, and more digital communication, Facebook, Instagram, of course, all social media. So um, the information is, is, is out there. So you'll get information, listeners, about what exactly is happening, how to get there, um, uh, where to <laughs> approach the event, and and more details about what will actually happen when each of the performers, uh, the artists that bring uh, energy to Tide by Side, what you can anticipate. But just to recap, Tide by Side, Sunday, November 27th, from 3 to 6, but we're encouraging the public to arrive as soon as 2, if only for parking purposes, and to uh, stay on. Uh, indeed, uh, there, you know, tasting bites, you know, food will be served out of Antony Miralda's The Last Ingredients Project, uh, experiments with various native uh, food, going from conch, avocado, maize, etc., etc. But Sunday, November 27th, 3 to 6, Fahrenheit District between 32nd and 36th Street between the Atlantic Ocean and Indian Creek around Collins Avenue. 
Thank you so much for being here with me today. Marinella Senatori and Claire Tancon. Thank you so much, Kathy. Thank we'll you. see you in a couple of weeks. Well, in just about 10 days. One, two, three. 10 days. 10 days. Okay, the excitement is building. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you. Before I introduce our next guest, Alexis Gideon, I want you to listen to an excerpt of his new video opera, The Comet and the Glacier. When I first saw the almanac, it took me back a ways. To days long gone in my childhood room on the yellow and green rug on the floor. The smell of the old pages and saturation of the illustrations reverberating in my mind. I remembered reading these stories so vividly, but this was impossible. The almanac had just been discovered in Dysonhofen. Fresh Art International show on Jolt Radio. We just played an excerpt of Alexis Gideon's newest work, The Comet and the Glacier. And Alexis is here in the studio today. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Alexis is a Pittsburgh-based artist, does visual arts. He's a composer and performer, and he has presented animated live operas around the world. I had a chance to drop by Locust Projects this week and see the installation and process and hear you rehearse. And we were talking before the show that while this newest project combines installation, music, video, performance, animation, clay reliefs, and paintings on glass, that's intense. Yeah, it is, it is pretty intense. It's a pretty, it's very maximal. It's maximal. <laughs> very maximal. I, I don't even, I run out of breath yeah. listing what's <laughs> going to be involved. But you had told me that this is the first time you've actually presented an installation with your opera. Yes, it is. Usually it's a one or two nights at an institution. I show up and perform alongside the projection. Uh, but with, with this, uh, piece at Locus, it'll be it's the first big build out and immersive installation that is going to be taking it to the next level and bringing the uh, audience into um, you know, a space to heighten 
the the work often creates like its its own universe, and I think that'll be really heightened by having the immersive uh, installation element for this one. And we're going to be talking about exactly what will be the experience. But first, I want to know why opera? What has attracted you to opera? There seems to be a trend of engagement of contemporary art with opera, and I, I'm really I'm fascinated. That's a good question. I think opera is. The, a term I use, video opera, is a term I used uh, to explain the performances I do, although opera is a bit of a misnomer in the sense that it's not like classical opera at all. Um, and it's, it, in terms of stylistically, it doesn't sound like opera. But all the um, narration and dialogue of the stories that the video operas are told through music, and that's why I use that term. So my background is in music, and then I made the crossover to visual art when I really wanted a narrative and visual element um, in my work. And that's why it's called opera. Uh, but it, people, I think I think the, the image that comes up when people hear that word is, is pretty different than what they end up seeing when they come. I would say you're right based on my, <laughs> <laughs> based on my experience of a rehearsal. Let's describe the visitor encounter that's being built as we speak. Yeah. And Alexis has been putting in some super long hours to get this project ready, and Locus has a team working with him to create this very interesting experience. Maybe start with our experience of your childhood through the installation. How does that play out? Yeah, well, the the piece of Common in the Glacier is a lot about memory and, and childhood memories and sort of remembering things that were impossible for you to remember, remembering things that didn't happen. And uh, the piece really focuses on uh, fiction and fact and truth and how we create our own truth and what is fictitious about that. So there are many different stories of narrative. And uh, one of the ways that plays out is uh, in, in the installation, there are different structures that you go and experience parts of the narrative, parts of the video in. And one of them is a kind of poetic replication of my childhood bedroom where you see some of the what I've been terming video poems there's two of them that start and end the piece on memories of growing up in New York City so that's one of the structures I noticed both of them reference water and the beach which is interesting since here we are at the edge of the ocean well uh I always uh as a a kid uh I lived on Madison Avenue in New York City and it's kind of a lot of traffic at night and always hearing the traffic go by and it always was soothing to me i know a lot of people don't find that easy to sleep to but to me it sounded like the ocean and that's a really uh deep memory and traffic always kind of seems like the ocean to me so tying in the displacement of memory and you can be remembering experiences when you're somewhere completely different so the idea of water and the beach in new york city and the that juxtaposition uh is kind of at the center of of those parts of the work and yeah it makes a lot of sense that here we are at the beach for where where the show will happen. I know many times I've talked myself into thinking that all the traffic is just water. It's, it's nicer that flowing way. By. I think so. <laughs> the next place that we stop, I believe you'd want people to stop at a replica of your office for a piece called The Almanac, which is behind the Comet in the Glacier story. Yes. So... The office is based on, uh, there's a stop motion animation in some of the video, and there's a, I'm a main character, a fictitious version of me as a main character, and my character 
encounters this book called The Almanac that I remember reading as a child, but the book had just been discovered. And so my character decides to pick a title from the table of contents of The Almanac that he hasn't read, or I haven't read, uh, entitled The Common and Glacier, and create my own version of it. So that part of the narrative is told in the replica of the stop motion, the life-size replica of the stop motion set of my character's office. In the almanac, he finds a story called The Comet and the Glacier. Yes. And the other two parts play out. You can always tell me if I didn't get this right, but I I think I've got it. You're getting it. Two (laughs) medieval huts are going to be inside the space, and the spaces wherein these stories are told that are based on medieval ideas of astronomy from the 15th and 16th century. That is exactly correct. So... There's uh, my character's version of the story, which is told through a video that videos of paintings on glass that I did. And then the other version, uh, which is the original version written by Frederick Otto Bueller, who is a fictitious author of the Almanac. Um, who and, is actually Alexis Gideon. Yeah, who is <laughs> who, who's a product. So Bueller's of, version is, is his viewpoint. Your viewpoint is based on your imagination of what that story was about since you can't actually read it. Right. Or maybe never did. Right. It's very confusing, this project. It's a little, <laughs> it's a, a lot of, a lot of layers of narrative and a, and a lot of, but yeah, it is confusing. I, but I love your version, I have to say, is told from the perspective of the people that live on a comet, see a glacier coming in the sky. Yes. And what is Bueller's version? Bueller's version is uh, the people who are on the glacier seeing the comet approaching in the sky. And the two stories have some differences, but they also are intertwined. It investigates uh, the idea of other and the idea of displacement and the, the idea of what's approaching. What's approaching as in our future? <laughs> it is a bit of a cautionary tale. Um, I would say. Which, and uh, it seems strangely more relevant with the uh, recent political events than I thought. You've written that your work examines the loss of the mystical in contemporary society. When I hear it, reading, deciphering the story and figuring out how to describe it with you, I feel that it's a loss of a sense of the mythical. There are a lot of myths we live with, contemporary myths and urban legends and things like that, but this this way you're talking about the mystical and the mythical, tell me. Well, I think that's dead on. I think it is It is about the loss of the, of the mythical. And I think so much about myth is about stories and storytelling. And I, I think that we've gotten further away from that. And, and this piece kind of looks at it in the sense by focusing on memory and memory sort of personal myth. I think that we all can relate to the personal myths of memories because we kind of construct our concepts of ourselves out of our memories, which are, of course, faulty. Or maybe they're not faulty, but they're not the same as if someone was recording it on a camcorder. It would have been different than what we remember. Let's talk, of course, about how your live performance interacts with these installations now. Yes. So How does that work? So there's five chapters that take place in a four-channel video installation in these four structures we've talked about. And uh, the audience kind of, when it's not during the performance, goes through the space and finds these different fragments of the story that all have resonances in each other. And it creates this emotive, dreamy, 
experience of the story. And then the only time the the narrative is told from the beginning to the end straight through is when I do the live performance. And the live performance, I'm alongside the um, projection, performing all the music, and the characters move their mouths in sync with my delivery and kind of takes the storytelling to the final capitulation of it by being the immediacy of having me there and uh, it unfolding in, in real time changes it and, and makes it more um well makes it a communal experience because people bring whatever their interpretations are to it and people bring their emotions to it it becomes uh, at its purest level the most immediate form of the communication of the ideas i found it a really hypnotic experience when i got to be there for the rehearsal one of the rehearsals you seem to keep going on that <laughs> <laughs> Got to be prepared. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And so uh, where can our listeners discover more about your operas? And this one in particular, where should they go? Well, they should come to Locust Projects if they're going to be around <laughs> from uh, November 19th through this January 21st. This is an in-real-life opportunity, yeah. both of these that we spoke of today. But um, they can go, I guess, on my website and uh, alexisgideon.com and find out more information there when I might be coming to a town near them. And locustprojects.org actually has the schedule of all the times you'll be performing live. Yes, which is quite a bit coming up in the next couple of weeks. I think we have 11 performances or something like that. So there's there's some good opportunities to come out and experience a piece. And please say hi and we can talk. Absolutely. So are you super excited about this? I am so excited. It's been such a great process. And working with Locust Projects has been amazing. They've been uh, really so supportive in figuring out how to do practical things to pushing the concepts and pushing, uh, you know, critical ideas. So it's, it's been kind of like whole everything. They're, they're there for it, and it's been a dream to work with them. And I'm going to be sad when it's over and I have to leave. I, I feel like part of the family. That's great. And for those who come and experience it, what are you – what's your aim? What do you – what do you want for the takeaway? Well – from the I, comet and the glacier. I, I try to create a narrative that maybe doesn't move linearly. I, I don't want people necessarily to come and understand it as if, oh, I understood everything that that story was about, but I want them to move through it and the narrative to move through emotionally. So I want people to come in and have an emotional experience, an, an evocative experience that maybe brings up their own memories and brings up a dream state, a dream consciousness where maybe the... Um, exact meaning of what's happening isn't clear, but the feelings that it gives you are clear and that something significant happened. So you're encouraging those who experience it to create their own mythologies, maybe definitely remember their own childhood memories in new ways and think of what they might mean. Yeah, and how it relates to the people on either the comet or the glacier, depending on which one they're on. That's true. <laughs> Thank you, Alexis Gideon, for Thank being so on my show. Thank you so much for having me, Kathy. It was really a pleasure. Listeners, if you're enjoying our programs on Fresh Art International, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at FreshArtINTL and Jolt Radio. This is Fresh Art International, and I'm Kathy Bird. We're broadcasting live from the Jolt Studio in Miami, Florida. Join us each week for our Contemporary Art Talk Show.